Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing of the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. A reading from Luke's Gospel, the 10th chapter. A legal expert stood up to test Jesus. He said, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you interpret it? He responded, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the legal expert wanted to prove that he was right. So he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He encountered thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. Now it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. Likewise, a Levite came by the spot, saw the injured man, and crossed over. A Samaritan, who was on a journey, came to where the man was. But when he saw him, He was moved with compassion. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, tending them with oil and wine. Then he placed the wounded man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took two full days' worth of wages and gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, Take care of him, and when I return, I will pay you back for any additional costs. What do you think? Which one of these three was a neighbor to the man who encountered thieves? Then the legal expert said, The one who demonstrated mercy toward him. And Jesus said, Go 
and do likewise. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Jesus tells this story plainly and concisely and without any elaboration. And he exposes deep fissures within our communities and our soul today. In his telling, the parable is more than a prescription to just go and do likewise. Instead, it's an invitation to know and to experience the care of the stranger who finds us wrecked and broken, lifts and binds us up and offers us acceptance and welcome. It suggests no philosophy, but instead translates a lived theology into compassionate practice. It smashes the dividing walls that separate people into race or class or racial or ethnic or gender groupings. The parable, even after all these years and all these retellings, disturbs our conscience and pivots us pivots us toward a life which merges our freedom and our responsibility to to create new horizons for our lives, for humanity and for this and every community. The parable unpacks the meaning of God's great promise, Behold, I am making all things new. And this day, we need to see that God and Jesus Christ is making all things new. For hearts are breaking and our minds are reeling as we absorb the news of tragic deaths of God's beloved children, each one created in God's image in Baton Rouge, in the Twin Cities, in Dallas, and in Bangladesh, and in Baghdad, in Istanbul as well, and all the places we too quickly forget about or never even notice. Ugly specters of race and class, of privilege and prejudice, of power and authority have been pushed into the center of a national conversation that is at one time passionate and hopeful, but also disturbing and revealing. Of all the stories of Jesus, this parable has the power to transform our prayers into actions, actions rooted in an unflinching compassion that can and should play a role in the healing of this world. It was compassion, according to Luke, that impelled the Samaritan to care for the half-dead man he found in the ditch. And it is compassion, care for ourselves, care for our neighbors, care for our community, It is the golden rule that stands at the heart of other major religions. Thankfully, the word compassion still evokes some positive feelings. We imagine ourselves to be compassionate people who are decent and kind and understanding and are willing to put this mindset into practice. We assume that compassion is a natural response to human suffering. Who wouldn't feel compassion for a family of Syrian refugees fleeing their bombed-out city? Who doesn't feel compassion for a black man who dies in peculiar circumstances in a police encounter? Who doesn't feel deeply for police officers killed in the line of duty? Who isn't moved by the sight of a hungry child, a wounded soldier, 
the victim of a disaster. Compassion belongs to our most indisputable of human qualities. Aren't you offended when somebody accuses you of lacking compassion? Isn't that an insult? We identify compassion with being human. But if being human and compassionate are the same, then why, oh, why is our world shredded by violent forces that tend to render our lives meaningless? How is it that so many innocent people suffer from hunger or tainted water, the failures of political leaders, the loss of meaningful paid work, or a safe and stable place to live? Why do differences in religion or race or sexuality block the paths that exist toward which we might have conversations and bring communities together? Why do human beings regularly torture and terrorize, kidnap, assault, and kill one another? These questions point us to look deeper, deeper into Karen Armstrong's little book, 12 Steps Toward a Compassionate Life. As we know, compassion stands at the core of our faith tradition. According to Armstrong, compassion has to do with our suffering with, our ability to experience, to undergo the experience of another. Frederick Beekner observes that compassion is for us the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it's like to live inside someone else's skin, as well as the knowledge that there can never be any peace and joy for me until there's peace and joy for you, and you, and you. Compassion asks us to seek the darkness that's close to the heart of human existence. It challenges us to set aside the binoculars that have distorted our vision of humanity and to see the rawness of life, and that it insists that we hold a candle, a light in the darkness high in the sky for Alton Sterling, for Philandro Castile, for the five police officers in Dallas, for travelers who died in Istanbul, for diners in Bangladesh, and for families gathering to break the fast of Ramadan as they gathered around tables in the Karata neighborhood in Baghdad. Physician and humanitarian Paul Farmer says that the idea that some lives matter less than others is what is at the root of all that is wrong with the world today. All lives matter and this is a principal insight of our biblical story today. Understood as suffering with and known as entering into places of turmoil, it's not surprising that compassion does evoke a deep resistance, even a protest. With others, we're inclined to reject this path, saying, this is needless, self-inflicted pain, and I don't need it. It's key to recognize that this resistance is part of our normal experience. We look skeptically upon people attracted to compassion. We avoid pain ourselves. But we would do well to rely upon Armstrong's principal insight that of all, 
that all the major faith traditions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, all, all agree that compassion is the most reliable way of putting the self in its proper place because it requires us all day and every day to dethrone ourselves from the center of our world and to put another there. And John Wooden, the Hall of Fame basketball coach, observed that it's what you learn after you know it all that really counts. <laughs> Some years ago, a group of Christian activists visited the late Senator Hubert Humphrey in his Washington office. They were working on a project on compassion in the Christian life, and they identified Humphrey as one of the most caring and compassionate men and national leaders in all of the country. Included in the group was Henry Nouwen, the Catholic writer and activist, and he narrates the story. The senator, who had just finished talking with the ambassador to Bangladesh and obviously expected from us a complaint, a demand, or a compliment, was visibly caught off guard when asked how he felt about the role of compassion in politics. Instinctively, he got up, left the large desk, and picking up a long yellow pencil with a tiny rubber eraser at the end, said in his famous high-pitched voice, Gentlemen, look at this pencil. Just as this eraser is a very small part of this pencil and is used only when you make a mistake, compassion is only used when things get out of hand. The main part of life is competition. Only the eraser is compassion. It's sad to say, but in politics, compassion is just part of the competition. Is compassion suited only to erase the mistakes of this life? Just as that small rubber temp of the pencil. You remember pencils. <laughs> is compassion then just an amped up delete button that we all have on our laptops and iPads? Perhaps this is how many of us really feel if we're honest. It's neither our central concern or our primary mindset. What we really desire is, well, to have a good life. To have a life, a career, to have a family of our choosing, to be successful. We imagine ourselves to be in a way that's anything but compassionate. We also see a life that permits us to maintain a safe distance from people we chose not to associate with. We don't desire to put ourselves in the place of other men and women. We develop strategies that keep us apart from the rawness of life. It holds a place, a complex place in our world, as our colleague Melissa Ann Rogers pointed out last week. But there is no ambiguity in Jesus about the centrality of compassion. When he saw the crowds in Galilee harassed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd, he felt with them in the center of his being. When he saw the blind, the paralyzed, and the deaf coming to him from all directions, he knew their pain in his own heart. When he observed the thousands of women and men who had followed him for days and were tired and hungry, he said, I am moved with compassion. 
And so it was with the blind men, the widow at Nain, the lepers. The suffering pain of people moved him, and he became lost with the lost, hungry with the hungry, and sick with the sick. That word compassion appears in the New Testament about 20 times, and about a dozen of those references occur when God and Jesus are directly involved. Places where God was literally moved, changed to compassion. The Greek expression is literally to be moved in the guts, the depths of your body. The place where our most intimate and powerful emotions are located. The ground from which passionate love and zealous hate arise. When Jesus was moved to compassion, the source of all life shook, the ground of love exploded in the depth of God's mysterious, immense, and exhaustible mercy revealed itself. Again, now on. God's compassion is not something that's just abstract and indefinite, but it is a concrete and specific gesture in which God reaches out to us. In Jesus Christ, we see the fullness of God's compassion. I don't think there was any confusion at all in the mind of the Samaritan when he crossed that road that led down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he approached a half-dead man lying in the ditch. He did not pass by. A priest and a Levite passed by, shirking all responsibility and renouncing their freedom to act in the traditional way of kindness that's embedded in Jewish law and embodied in the golden rule. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But not all passed by. The Samaritan appeared and stopped. He was an enemy, literally. He was a non-person and an outcast to others. Yet he was the one who saw the victim as God saw the victim. More than half of this parable details the Samaritan's actions. Crossing the road, feeling compassion, bandaging wound, pouring oil and wine, lifting the man on his animal, caring for him at the inn, and arranging for his care and hospitality. These are not first aid instructions for us to follow, but rather an open invitation. My soul is like a house. Small for you to enter, but I pray you to enlarge it, said Augustine. The Samaritan is intentional, empathetic, and responsible. Taking charge of a nightmarish tragedy, he translates compassion into action. This is, I think, a mysterious movement and moment of salvation for all people, for the victim for the Samaritan, and for the whole community, the whole world. This is the grace and compassion of God at work in a situation that's fraught with violence, with racism, with ethnic hatred, and with great power. This is compassion at work. This is no mere eraser deleting the mistakes of one or many or a nation. This is the power of God who makes all things new. People need, the community needs, the church needs something more than just a fresh reading of this old parable. 
It needs something more than an interpretation. We need first to be refreshed by the mercy of a God who has the power to exchange our grief and our privilege and to use them to make safe space for all the children of this world. Before we rise in anger or fear or action, we need to first sit with these perplexing stories of Jesus and take deep in our bones the embrace of the Lord who is God of all creation and Lord of all. And we need to look with curiosity upon all the different people of our community and world. We're all connected. They were different in appearance and attitude and even values, as were the characters in Jesus' parable. And connected, we need a church, a community, and a world that embraces all, provides opportunity for all, and cares for all. One thing we have learned again and again over these days is that all lives do in fact matter to the God who created us in all of life. And before we go rushing down the Jericho Road, imagining ourselves to be heroes, we need first to be infused with both the compassion and humility of Christ himself. And we could stand just an ounce of his courage as well. For we need the audacity of prophets and activists who can envision and press us toward the abundant life that God offers to all of us. The late Kurt Vonnegut, the crypto-Christian, seemed to grasp the essence of Christianity when he was asked by a young student from Pittsburgh. Please tell me it will all be okay, the student asked after 9-11. Maybe that's the American equivalent of the lawyer's question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Welcome to earth, young man, Vonnegut said. It's hot in the summer, it's cold in the winter. It's round and wet and crowded. And outside, you've maybe got a hundred years here. There's only one rule I know of. Be kind. Thanks be to God. For God has pressed us in a new direction. Amen and amen. All these prayers we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who prays with us, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.